All right, Susan, thank you. Good morning, you guys. Very good to be with you guys. I am excited about today. I have to tell you, I was um, yesterday. I um, I coached five soccer soccer games. Uh, we had tournament day. I coached two teams. I have uh, you know under I have little boys, my son, and then my daughter and her team. And uh, there's a lot of like yeah screaming and all you know, all that kind of stuff. And you know go and you know don't don't do that and put that down and run over here to our game, not theirs, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But afterwards, we had it was tournament day. It was the end of the season and. Uh, I was at a pool party to have our end of the season party, and I'm talking to this one guy. There's two, I think there's two or three families on, our, on this one team I was coaching who are Mormon families, and so they're asking about what I do. And it's always like this one guy's kind of asking, he's real involved in his church, his, little, his Mormon church, and he's like, so what do, you, what do you do exactly? And I'm like, I'm the lead pastor of the Mariner's Church in Mission Viejo. And he goes, oh, what does a lead pastor do? And I thought... Nobody knows what a lead pastor does. No, I don't care whether you're not a Mormon or not. You don't know. I mean, it's like most of you guys are like, hey, you probably work one day a week. That's a great job. <laughs> you just do Sundays, and then what do you do? Nothing. You just talk for a few minutes, and that's it. And so I was trying to explain what we do, and I was explaining about our church, and I talked about how much I love our church. I talked about how this is, you know, I'm like, this is like, we're like the warmest group of people you've ever met, people who come into our church who have not been to church in a really long time. And they're skeptical, and they were invited by someone, you know, who's like, I'm telling you, it's different. And they always tell me at the door, I'm telling this guy the story. They tell me at the door how great it was to be a part of the community of people. And they, you know, they, I'm, I'm kind of almost irrelevant in a lot of ways. They're like, well, that guy's there, but there's people who are so kind. I'm explaining this to this guy. And he's like, yeah, I get it, how you're kind of not that relevant. I'm like, okay, back with me. And so I start turning, of course, into like a little bit of pastor preacher mode, which I can tell he's getting bored a little bit. So I start talking about the, the staff, and I start talking about how we have this great children's ministry, and we have, you know, a youth ministry, and we have all this other stuff, and we have people who worship, and our weekend experience is programmed, and all this, all this stuff. And I go, there's one thing that kind of sets our DNA apart from, you know, really, it's, I, and I go, I know I'm not supposed to be like, proud, because that's like the evil, like the most evil thing is to be proud. But I, I got to tell you, I like love our church for this one thing we do. It's like so critical. I go, we have this thing called outreach. And it's really above and, above and beyond the generosity of our people to, you know, help us do what, what God's already called us to do. There's above and beyond call that people give to help support ministry to folks that are in the margins, people that are forgotten, the, the poor. And he goes, okay, what's that about? And I go, and I just went off. I started going how crazy it was, how great it is. And I go, one of the things that we do is we do this thing once a year. We get everybody our whole church, I go, you know, we try to get at least a thousand people from our church to be a part of this. And we've done it two years in a row where we find in our community an under-resourced school, public school, that has a great principal, great leadership, great PTA, great principal. And then we say, how could we be a part of helping to, you know, be a part of, a part of this, a part of seeing the school take a next step. And the expectation is that we get nothing in return. And he starts to lean in like, really? You guys, like, yeah, we don't want anything in return. We just believe in making a great city. That's part of our, that's part of our mandate. We believe in that. And he's like, what happens? I go, you won't believe it. You go, the number of people that get connected to our church, they get an opportunity to see what might happen if they can make a difference. If everybody was unleashed on the same day to make a difference, they get a picture of what happens and they are overwhelmed. And he goes, really? I go, it's the best thing we do. It's so much fun. It has set, it has like really charted the course for our own, our own year. It makes our church believe in itself, makes our church see what God can do when a group of people kind of get lined up in the same direction. And I just want to let you know, that day is coming again. And when people look at our church, even if they hate Jesus, if they're like, well, I hate that guy. They're like, well, okay, but we're, you know, like, well, we're a church that at least believes in being a part of the work in the community to help you know, education and help be a part of the local schools. People go, well, that's all right. I mean, it doesn't matter. What, nobody's ever like, I feel like people, kids getting educated, bad. Like nobody ever says that. And we go, we agree. And so on June 12th, you got a red card and you came in. On June 12th, we launched our third serve day, which has been an enormously successful thing. It's been very, very fun. Um, if you're looking, uh, Susan and I talked about getting connected, but if you want to get connected in a way that is you know, just like instantaneous connection, do this. Be a part of this. If you're wondering if it's you, the answer is yes, it's you. Because your friends will ask you what kind of churches, and you go, well, I don't know about everything we do there, but I know that we're about caring for our community. And they'll be like, wow, really? Seriously, that's you? And you go, yes, that's us. In fact, I don't know if you guys knew this. Last year, uh, our church, our outreach, not really our, our church, but our outreach team, got a, an award from the County Board of Education. The public school county board of education went, we love the way you partner in the community. We love what your church is doing for our public schools. Now, note that. Note, just note the significance of that. We are so grateful to you. Here's an award because of this work. Now, here's what I want to do. You can fill this out in one of two ways. You can fill this out if you're like, I love paper and pencil and I love that. I love the, I love the feel of writing things down. Just, that's you. Great. You can do that. You can give this to the outreach table or you can do this. I'll put the number on the screen. 
You also can just text the keyword school to that number, 267-3131. And here's what will happen. You'll get a little link. It'll take you, I did it on our, on our office. It takes about a minute and a half, maybe less than that, to fill out your name, information, stuff, what kind of teams you want to serve on, and then you're signed up and ready to go. Now, some of you are wondering, why do I have to sign up to be kind? I don't want to sign up to be kind to someone. Don't make me sign up for your, your like, conspiracy and all that. I don't, I don't want to give you that information. Here's the deal. All we're doing is keeping track of how many people we got to feed on Sunday because we'll show up on Sunday the 12th. You'll come here. You'll be ready to work. We'll drive over there, and then we'll serve you a big lunch. We need to know how many people we're going to feed. Secondly, we're going to divide everybody up into teams. we got to make sure those teams have enough people to do the tasks that are before us. That's why we register. Everybody cool about that? Everybody, okay, now here's, I'm, I'm really, if you don't woo here, you're just, you're just going to sound like an idiot, okay, ready? You're just going to be like, wow, your, your silence will be noted. Do you agree by, by power of woo? Not yet, don't, don't jump the gun. Do you agree by power of woo that a church should be involved in seeing its own community be bettered? There you go. All right. Sorry if that hit you, sir. Talk to our lawyers afterwards. Okay. Um, Welcome, I'm glad if you're new with us. I'm really, really glad you're here. Hopefully you get a sense. We say this around here a lot, that we are a church that's in the community, for the community. And if you're a person who's like, I'm not sure about Jesus, but I like that you're, being, you're really being taking the resources of the community and putting them back into the community. I love that. That's what we're about. We're a church of people who believes everybody has a next step, regardless of where you come in. No matter your experience, knowledge, expertise on the Bible or the church, we believe every single person in this room has a next step to take. And we also believe that we're a group of people trying to follow Jesus and love other people, and we're absolutely 100% convinced that we do not do it right all the time. We also are convinced that we don't have all the answers, and if you're a person who is wanting to join us in this journey towards following Jesus and discovering some of the great questions and kind of wrestling with some of those things and being a work in progress, then you're in the right community because that's what we're about. We've been in a series, too, that has somehow struck a nerve with a lot of people, and um, we keep kind of coming back to it going, should we change it up? It seems like people still have momentum and energy towards this series, which is a series called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And that, as we talk about it, it's like we're kind of going right into the hardest stuff, most difficult things Jesus says, and people seem to be really enjoying it, and so, and really kind of enjoying kind of the conversation about it as well. And the series basically is based on the idea that as we think about Jesus, most often people have the impression that Jesus walked around, when he said stuff, everybody was like, yeah, Jesus, what you said is the best, we love what you're saying, we love all that stuff. And yet, the Bible tells a different story. As we've said every single week, there's this, there's a couple instances where you see people, Jesus will say things and people are like, I don't know. I don't like it. He's done all these miracles and shown his power and all kinds of stuff that he really is God's guy for the world. And he's done all this stuff. People are walking who couldn't walk. People are seeing who were blind. People are being healed of all leprosy, skin, everything else. He's, Jesus is turning water into wine. How fun is that? And then he starts saying stuff and people go, way slow down. Look at this. John 6, uh, 66, says, or John 6, 60 says this. On hearing this, Jesus teaching... Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Now, we've been pointing out about this, about this verse is, it's not just simply, well, this is just a little confusing, can you help us straighten it out? It's, this is crazy, and no right-minded person could ever fully understand or accept this. You're crazy, Jesus. Further down, six verses later, you get this. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They liked what he was doing. They believed in maybe what he was saying, maybe, or at least in principle, likely. But when it got down to the practical stuff about their own life, they went, I don't know. He's just, he's crazy. And what we've been walking into every single week throughout this series, and, which, and no matter, again, whether or not you're new to Jesus or you have been walking, you grew up in the church, you know, whatever it might be, every single person is confronted with this question right here. What do we do with the things Jesus says that we really don't like? Because this is everybody's issue. Everybody is faced with this stuff. Some of us will say, well, it just doesn't matter. Some of us will tune it out. Some of us have selective hearing when it comes to that. Some of us will skip over it. Some of us will say there's no way he could have meant that. But we really, in, either, in any event, we're all faced with the idea that Jesus says things that are challenging, that confront our own life and reality, in which we have to go, I wonder what I want to do with that. And it's in that vein that we're continuing in our, continuing in our series. So would you do this? Would you pray with me as we um, kind of continue on? Let's pray. Father, we have a number of assumptions, things that we're aware of, some of the things we assume and we know, and some things we assume and we don't even know that they're assumptions. Some of them are accurate, Father, about you, and others of them are way off. And so, Jesus, as we consider what that might look like today, would you meet us in this place? Would you give to us a sense that you have, you have a love for us that's a love of a father for his own children? 
Jesus, we don't have everything together. We know that there is much that you intend to do with us and through us that we have only begun to crack the surface of. Father, today would you overwhelm our assumptions with the truth of your love. For just a moment, would you allow that to sink in? Would you allow God to speak to you that he loves you with a love that is the same as a father, a good father for his own kids, for his own children? that you just allow that to sink in for just a few seconds of stillness. Father, we know that you've intended us to live as dearly loved children. Might that be the source, the place that we start, the way in which we begin our own journey, the way in which you approach your work in progress kind of people. Speak to us today, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, if you want to follow along, we have, you can follow along in your own Bible. It's in, we'll be primarily in Matthew chapter 5. If you want um, to just kind of you look at an outline, you're, you have an outline in the back of your bulletin, you can flip that over and take notes there. If you're like, I don't know what I want to do, I just want to stare, maybe I'll even take a nap while you're talking, I get that. Everything you will need will be on the screen. You can look up here as well. All right. Now, let me ask you uh, just really quick. This is actually participatory, so I want you to actually say things back to me because sometimes people stare at me like he said something and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I want you to actually talk back. So um, let me ask you just what are some things, superficial or otherwise, could be really serious, but probably not, but just do something even superficially, things that you're afraid of. Sharks, right away. One and two, sharks. Wait, wait, slow down, slow down. I got to acknowledge some of these. Hang hang on. Someone said seaweed. (laughs) Seaweed. Wow, there's a lot of dangerous things in the ocean. Watch out, the kelp. Uh, Okay, good. Sorry, we got, I heard sharks. What else? Hikes. A long walk in the desert. This is, we're afraid of that. How far are we walking? I know, she said heights. I'm just kidding. Okay, with me. Thank you for the correction. (laughs) Hiking. Heights. Okay, what else? Earthquakes. Snakes. Earthquakes. Earthquakes is a tough fear because that's like, that's just, you just live in constant paranoia because <laughs> like, you can't do anything. There's no warning. It's just, yeah, just don't like in the midst of it, but it's just like there could be an earthquake any second. They, we're all, we've been told since we were children, the big one is coming in the next 36 seconds. You're just like, we lived our whole lives waiting for that big earthquake to happen. It hasn't happened yet. They're all lying. I don't know. Just kidding. What else? Spiders. How many of you guys, this is, this is pretty common. Last service, that was the first people, like the first response. Was, spiders. How many of you guys, you hate to be afraid. Spiders cause you great fear. Okay, how many of you got married to someone else just so they could handle the spiders that you're afraid of? <laughs> just be honest. Uh, they're okay, but they are not afraid of spiders. And I got a spider phobia. And it's a big deal. Deal with it. Yep. Some of you are like, yep, that's why, that's why I married you. We've grown into, our love has blossomed, but that's where it started. Okay, great. Uh, anything else? Clowns. How many guys clowns? Just out of curiosity. Slow down. Everybody, now we're not taking bids. Clowns. Clowns. Okay, good. What else? I heard someone else. Just slow down. Women. <laughs> Women. <laughs> okay. Let's bring the band back up. <laughs> I don't know what to do. All right. Now, there is, there is one fear most people often identify as their greatest fear. I mean, it's like the most common one. You all know this. People often identify public speaking as their number one fear. And, uh, you know, it's actually, you know, death is number three. Just to let you know on the list of, like, most common fears. <laughs> like, people would rather die than public speak. <laughs> like, you can choose death or give a speech. Ooh, how will I die? I mean, it's like that's the <laughs> question people have. Now, people often assume because this is my job that I, like, love it. I love public speaking and I'm not nervous at all. Let me just tell you, 100% truthfully, if you perceive me to be relaxed while I'm doing this, that is 100% a facade. I am totally terrified the entire time. They can tell you up in the front how many bottles of water I drink because I'm so nervous. And like, then I'll get nervous, my mouth will get all dry. And then I'll start thinking, oh my gosh, I drank so many bottles of water. Now I got to pee. And it's like the whole, this is, this is what I, I, I'm always, and you're like, I don't believe you. I'm telling you, I get home on Sunday and I'm exhausted because of the fear adrenaline. Like the fear you have for the earthquakes. That's what I fear the entire time I'm speaking, right? Now, there's something behind. Let's suppose this is most everyone's greatest fear. Now, whether or not, and again, you're like, I'm not afraid of being in front of people. Like, yeah, you've been on a jumbotron at the Angel Stadium. You're like, see, I don't care. I'm, I'm so I'm fine. But giving a speech which has to matter to people's lives, you'll be afraid. You will be afraid. It will cause you great fear because there's something behind this. And everybody has this to some degree. If you don't, there's something really wrong with you, really. 
There's something behind the, everybody's greatest fear. It's this. That despite our best efforts, we don't or won't ever really measure up. That when we get up in front of people, in whatever context, even in the world that we live in, there's some sense that whatever we got, it's not enough. That our best simply isn't enough to measure up to what, the, what everybody's expecting. That no matter how we think about it, whatever it is, that we, we live in a world where we wonder this all the time. Whether or not we ever give speech in front of a bunch of people. See, I think there's something as we talk about it. There's something that we all know about the world in which we live. We know it. We know it to be true. We know it in our own lives. And yet we continue to ignore this one thing. There's one thing we can constantly ignore. I would say we want something that we inherently know we can't have because it's impossible. We want this one thing. And the world we live in promises it to us if we can afford it, but it's really expensive. And even when we kind of approach it, it still continues to be a bit elusive. We want to be free of this one thing, but we demand it from other people. It's the reason why people leave churches and never come back. Some of you might have left the church at some point in your life going, I just can't do this one thing they seem to be expecting me to do. And everybody seems to be moving in this direction, and yet I don't seem to be getting it. And so the people here are either faking it, or they're lying, or they're doing something else, but I don't seem to be getting it, and it seems so unreasonable. And there's this belief that we have that Jesus would never say this one thing, which is so incredibly painful. And when we see him actually say this one thing, we go, I think I might die. It's that serious. It's so hard for us to get our heads around Here's that thing that Jesus says that's so incredibly scary. Matthew 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is, this is incredibly terrifying for a lot of us. If you're, at, like, when I was, when I first started, I first started going to church probably in junior high-ish age. And so someone said, you probably should memorize some Bible verses. So I memorized, you know, the end zone Bible verse in John 3, 16. Got that one. And then it was like, whatever else, other things kind of stuck out to me. And this is one that stuck out to me right away. Because I was terrified by it. I had so much emotion attached to this. I'm a person who believed um, in my own life that I could redeem the brokenness in my own life by being a perfect kid. I believed that the brokenness I had in my own relationship with my father, I believed that the things that were broken in my own present life with my friends or whatever else it might have been could have been redeemed by being a perfect child. Some of you have that experience. Some of you have had that belief placed upon you by other people and you live with this burden and you wonder, my gosh, why does Jesus have to say that? Can't he say something else? There's this impossible standard here. The church people, like maybe you grew up in a church where everybody faked like they were perfect, but nobody ever really dealt with stuff. Maybe that's your own family scenario. But there's this grand, when we start thinking about this idea of being perfect, there, there comes to us a kind of question because this is the genesis of the way in which we start confronting the idea of religion itself. And there's a great question that comes out there, which is this. There's this question that all religions ask at some point or another, and it's a great religious question. It's totally based in the idea of practices and behaviors. It's this question that all religion asks, which is this. Is my good good enough? And we wonder if we've been and grew up in a church and we saw that verse, and maybe if you're like me, it's one of the first ones you memorized, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect to my Father in heaven. What is that? Am I good enough? Because we know in our heart of hearts, we're just not good enough. Is my good good enough? We just have this fear. Now the question is, if we think about this person of Jesus, this feels like we're kind of like we're trapped. This feels like slavery. It feels like we're shackled to something. It feels like we only can encounter the idea of being perfect with fear. And we think about the, the person of Jesus and we wonder, he seemed like the kind of guy who was into freedom. He used words like redemption and reconciliation, the people being brought together, things like that hope and wholeness, and yet this idea of being and pursuing perfection seems like we're being trapped. So what do we do? What's really critical, we look at a verse like this, is to understand that the, there's something else there. Maybe there's something else to this that's worth considering. And that word's this, context. Context. It very much matters give you a couple examples of what I mean. I want you to imagine you were throwing a really great surprise birthday party. Just picture it, whether or not you've actually had one, this may have been you, but imagine you're having a really great surprise birthday party, okay? And it's so good that your friends are in your own house, people that you love the most in your life have managed to get into your own house, they've hidden perfectly, the lights are out, you're with someone else who has worked out their elaborate plan, and you walk into the door, 
And everybody bursts out with the plastic fake horns and everything else. Ah, happy birthday. And the lights come on, the confetti's in your face, and it's all in your eyes. And oh my gosh. And you scream out in joy and in terror because you're scared. They literally scare you. You go to the person who set it all up. You go, oh, I hate you. I'm going to kill you guys. And everybody's like, ah. And it's like the context is, this is so fun. This is so great. I love you guys. I can't believe you guys caught me off guard. Now, did you say the words, I hate you and I'm going to kill you? You sure did. You did. Is that enough to, like, in a court to decide this is a motive? Is it a declaration of intent to mass murder people? I don't think so, right? It's because it all comes out of the context in which the scenario takes place. I'll give you another example. I want you to imagine as you're looking, as you have before, everybody has done this, where you've searched for your own house in the satellite view of Google Maps, where you look at it, you keep zooming in a little closer and a little closer, and then pretty soon you get the street view and you're like, oh my gosh, my car is in the driveway. What else can they see in my, how much closer can I get? And pretty soon you're like hoping, you know, I mean, it's like, this is crazy what you get. You're like, I hope they don't go much further than this. But to zoom out just a moment, to imagine the top of your house. Imagine just from when you're looking at the top of your house in your own, you know, in your own phone or whatever, you're looking at it. And you were to show to someone from another country, you were to say, let me show you what America looks like. And you show them the, the top view of your own house. Like, look at that, that's America. That's what it's all about. Everybody looks like that. You would have given them an incomplete picture of what, America really is, because you've taken one thing and taken it out of its context. Now, what's happening in this passage is something that's probably, I would say this, this is the culmination of this, this passage is actually, Matthew 5, 48, is actually a culmination of a lot of stuff. Jesus is um, speaking to a group of people on a hillside called the Sermon on the Mount, that's why it's called the Mount, because it's on a hillside, in fact, if you want to go, I can take you to that place in November, we are, a bunch of us are going to... Um, Israel, if you want to go, you can come with me and Amanda, we're going, but that's beside the point. You can go to that. But I'll show you basically this hillside. And there's these group of people that are there, and Jesus is talking to his people about a new way to be human, a new way to live, a new kind of living, a new kind of life. And the way in which he's describing it, you could actually say it's kind of like this. It's like a king kingdom of God kind of manifesto. Jesus spoke a lot about this thing called the kingdom of God. And the way in which the people were supposed to live as citizens in that kingdom of God was going to look like this as part of this sermon. And it is a way of undermining, of subverting the powers and systems of the world with the most surprising means you've ever seen in your life. Now, the beginning of the passage, he tells everybody, don't be like the religious leaders that you know. In fact, your righteousness has to be better than theirs. And of course, everybody in the audience was like, wait a second, they're the most righteous people in the world. And then he begins to unpack something. As we skip down, he's talked about a few things. I just want to skip down to verse, this is chapter 5, verse 43. He starts here. You've heard that it was said. Typical of Jesus as he's addressing an issue. He'll start with this idea of, you guys all know the common knowledge we have, which is this. This is common knowledge for his audience. And notice this. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, when he says, you've heard it said, that means everybody would have been in general agreement about this statement. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That means there are some people for whom we can justify our hate and some people for whom we ought to always love. And in the mind of the first century Jew, that would have been, we can love fellow Jews, good neighborly Jews, and we should hate or despise Gentiles, non-Jews. In fact, so pervasive is this idea that it's part of even the song. You get this even from one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the 139th Psalm. This passage of the Bible is a passage that describes God's tender intricate involvement in our own individual creation. Talks about knowing hairs on our head, the days of our life. Talks about the words in the Psalm 139 are things like this. People use this all the time. And it's so valuable and precious. It's like, God knit us together. You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's so incredibly sincere and intimate. And right about the last quarter of that, that whole Psalm, expressed by King David about his love for Jesus, or God, love for God, you get, this, you get this little weird thing where you get this right here. Look what it says. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Verse 20. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Notice how this is being celebrated as a virtue. Yeah, those people that hate you, I hate them too. We're on the same team. And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. The psalmist, David, is saying, isn't it a good thing that I hate the people that hate you? That's kind of what you want, right? That's kind of our aim. And Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, hate those who hate you and love your neighbor. That's what you're supposed to do. Then he 
begins to show his contradiction or his next step or his other layer of thinking about this with these words. So you've heard it said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a completely revolutionary idea, and there's no, there's no exact parallel to this idea in any of the Jewish tradition. This is completely bizarre. That this person would say, God would, Jesus would say, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And it indicates something, check this out, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, what marks, marks Jesus' own people, unique among the world, isn't their perfect obedience to a set of rules. They already had those people who did that, the religious leaders. Jesus is not opposed to right living. But that would mark us as children would be people who are curiously and peculiarly focused on loving people who, re, who are intent on not returning that love. That's what makes us or marks us as children. He'll continue on. This idea. Oh, it's this. The thing that marks God's people as sons and daughters of God is this one thing, unrestricted love. He'll continue on. Jesus will continue on the same idea. He'll talk about the, what this all might mean. And he continues with this, with this idea. Check this out. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, meaning even people who say they hate God still benefit from his goodness. Shouldn't we, people who follow Jesus, he would say to his audience, shouldn't we be people who live out that same kind of love, which is unrestricted on who receives it? Because what Jesus will say as he's talking about this is that there is another kind of love, which is completely unremarkable. Check this out. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? By the way, tax collectors are believed to be the, the worst people in all of the world by, by Jews. because These are, these are government-sponsored rip-off artists of their own people. These are tax collectors. People are taken over by Rome. Rome appoints some people from the conquered people to tax the people they just took over. That's what a tax collector does. By the way, I should say that the person writing this, Matthew, is a tax collector. So he gets it, right? Jesus says, are not even the tax collectors doing that, loving the people that love them? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that, people that are far from God. Now, think about this for a Just think of the worst person you can imagine. You're like, I got that person. I know that person. That person, the worst person you can imagine, on TV or otherwise, that person loves the people that love them. They're kind to the people who are kind to them. So Jesus is saying, big deal if you do that. That doesn't really mean anything significant to us. What we're looking at is a different kind of love that's going to change the world. Jesus' intention for this kingdom manifesto speech is to find and talk about a way in which the world can be un undermined with its ways, that it can be undermined with something other than the way the world functions. There's nothing unique and compelling about a love for people that already love us. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. Now, we still have to talk about this because you're still going, okay, I get this, but let me, let me just help explain this a little bit further. The word perfect there is this word right here. I think I put it on your notes, teleos. Now, here's what that word looks like, what it means. It means to be brought to completion, to be fully made mature. To be brought to completion, to be fully made mature. Let me um, give you an illustration of what I mean by that. This, um, I told you guys I, I, I coach soccer. I coach, you know, two teams. Six and seven year old boys and uh, nine and ten year old little girls. And let me tell you um, what I feel like that looks like for the most part. Here's what it is I got kids on my son's team who, this, this one kid who's the sweetest kid I've ever met in my life. He's the nicest, most genuine little boy ever. He's, you know, about, comes up to about just a little bit above my knee. He's just tiny. And he is, that's a little bit of exaggeration, but not much. He's just a small little kid. And of course, because he didn't show up to the first practice, he only has the biggest jersey that we had. So he's just wearing this, this poor kid's wearing a dress the entire time. Now, as he's running around, on the field, I'm not joking you, he runs, he, he just, more than a couple games, he just do this, literally, with his hands, like pantomiming binoculars on his face. And the, and the game is happening, and he's like, look, there's other games over there, and there's my sister, and there's that guy's dog, and he's literally doing, I'm like, hey, Jonah, hey, buddy, Jonah, hey, man, and I literally have talked to him like this, like, hey, buddy, hey, put those binoculars on the ball, partner, just find the ball, and just put them right on that ball, and then he wants you to run over there, and he's like, Okay, and he'll run over there with his hands like this, run over to the ball. <laughs> totally not exact. This is literally how I'd have to coach this kid. And he'd just run around with his hands like this. And these are kids who are just fascinated by their, like, soccer cleats. They're like, these shoes are different than my other shoes. 
They have bumps. Did you know they have bumps on my shoes, coach? I do. Start running toward the ball, you know, and it's like, the whole, you know, just do the best you can. And it's like the whole time I'm just going, you guys, hey, hey, you know, like their age. Hey, you guys, I need you to do your job. Are you standing next, are you standing next to Matt? Uh-huh. What's Matt's job? He, he's playing the left forward. What are you doing? I'm the left defender. Well, should you be right next to him? Okay, well, where should you go? That's right, run on over there, my man. Okay, they run over there. And it's, it's like they just, the whole time, it's like, okay, everybody do the best you can. Now, I want you to understand, my goal for these kids is that they're able to play soccer with some level, at least so they can enjoy it, and they get some idea what the game's supposed to be about. And I do a lot of like, hey, will you kick that ball in our own goal, but at least you're kicking the ball now. That's right, okay, we're gonna get the next one. Hey, you know, if you see our teammate wearing the, our goalie jersey, don't kick it in there, go kick it, don't kick it in the other one, okay? All right, whole time the parents are just like, oh, you know, let them off the hook. I'm like, I'm, I'm not mad at them, they just gotta figure out where they're supposed to go. So it's all this, all this is happening. Now I want you to understand, I want them to pass the ball. I want them to like dribble it. I want their first touch, like they, when the ball rolls to them, they get big eyes, like, oh, this is my chance to destroy this soccer ball. And usually they miss, and then they, I mean, it's like, okay, hey, let's have our first touch be a little softer. We can move it, maybe pass to our teammates or dribble it or whatever. And they're like, no, I just want to kick it. It's like, okay, I want them to pass the ball. I want them to shoot in the right goal. I want them to figure out how to play the game, which means that is what a fully complete, mature soccer player is intended to do. The Bible will tell us, the author of Hebrews will write these words, that Jesus, in, the, in some of the older translations, he'll write these words, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, that when we talk about what it looks like to be someone who is fully mature, it is someone who is not simply intended to be, I don't look at these little kids and go, when you guys figure out how to play soccer perfectly, then you can join my team. It's my job to help them get there. Jesus invites us to be part of his family and says, let me help you to be brought to the way you were intended to live, to be brought to maturity, to be perfected. This is what's intended by what this means. Now, you have to understand another thing, too, as part of this. When you look at this passage, um, the, the, Jesus' life and ministry is broken up into um, four, four essential, like we would say, four gospels, four accounts of his life and ministry. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read the Bible, these are the four, four Gospels. Each of, those, each of those accounts of Jesus' life are slightly different in the way that they perceive, their, the, perceive what Jesus did and the audience to whom they're speaking so they can be clear about it. So Mark is writing to a primarily Roman audience. He's writing, it's really, it's 16 chapters. It's really quick. And it's like every, almost every verse starts with the word and. It's just like we're moving through this. We got to get through, get through, get through. Because this is, Romans have no time for all this stuff. So get through it quickly, I guess. Now, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience, or at least an audience that would understand sort of Jewishness and also some other people who are being included in it. That's why there's so much reference to Jewish stuff. Then you have Luke, who's the only person who wrote, who's the only Gentile who wrote one of the gospel accounts. And John, who's kind of merging a lot together, using a lot of Greek philosophy to explain the divinity of Christ. Now, what you have to capture is the audience to whom it's being spoken has to be clarified in terms they can understand. Luke has a parallel passage. Stay with me. Luke has a parallel passage to this one where Jesus is explaining what we do with our enemies. And I want to show you what he's saying to his own audience so they understand what Jesus intended as Matthew records it. So check this out. So stay with me and it'll make sense in a second. Luke 6.35. But love your enemies. Sound familiar so far? Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Again, people who love their enemies are people who are counted as God's most beloved children. Then it says this, um, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, meaning the sun and the rain, sign on the, the wicked and the godly the same. Now notice this, the way in which he's clarifying for this audience what was intended by the words, be perfect as your father in heaven is, is perfect in the book of Matthew. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. In other words, what Luke is trying to clarify to his audience, who would have been maybe freaked out by the words perfect, he's trying to explain what that actually might look like to a different audience. Be merciful. You know, Jesus is speaking to a group of people, mixed group of people. Some of them are people who, are, who, are, who have felt the distance from God. They felt their own feeling of being away, kept away from God because of whatever they've done. These are people, some of them are day laborers. Some of them are super hyper righteous, you know, religious folks. And he's speaking to all these people. 
And all of them could have pointed to the most righteous people, these scribes and Pharisees, as people who had done everything right. And Jesus will say over and over again to some of these people who have done everything right, but are getting it all wrong. In other words, you could adhere to all of the rules and still get everything wrong. If you can't understand that God's intention, the fullness of what God's intending for us to be is not better rule followers. Again, he's not against moral rightness, but that, that's not the intention. The furthest intention, the teleos, what God has called us to be, is to be merciful. That's what it's about. Now, what I want to give you is at least something to consider about what do we do with this. I mean, what do we do with this? How does this at least make sense? Let me break this down a little bit, try to simplify it a little bit, try and give us some, a little bit of a handle to hold on to. But I should say this, that the Bible, as it talks about things, has a bias for action. The Bible does not have a bias for simply knowing stuff. There's always the assumption when you read and understand the Bible that it has some bias for us to begin taking some kind of action. And here's where I think that action starts. Let's begin here. Ephesians 5.1 says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now, you get the idea. We talk about it. We're trying to follow Jesus. This is what we're doing. But I want you to capture really clearly the idea of being dearly loved children. Some of you, this is the only thing you needed to hear today. That the impetus, the motivation, the reason why we would do anything to follow God's example is because we understand first and foremost that we belong to him in Jesus as, his, as part of his own family, that we're his own dearly loved children. If we believe we're constantly trying to earn the status of children, which no child has to do, they just get to be the kids. If we believe we're constantly having to earn that, then we're missing the point of even everything else we're talking about. If that's all you get today, we're good. Okay, but here's where it continues. Follow God's example, therefore, as God's dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Often in the Bible, the word walk and the word live are used interchangeably. You could also translate this as, as li and live in the way of love. Meaning that there's something about the way in which we live our lives that looks and feels like love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, the indication there or the meaning there simply is this. The example we got is a guy who gave up everything that he ever had that we might walk with him and love and be in relationship with him, live with him. So when we start talking about this idea of what it looks like to live out this new kind of perfect, a new understanding, first and foremost is live as beloved children. Live as beloved children. You know, one of the things I know about my own kids, and my, as, my own, as a parent, I know this too. This is really, it's kind of embarrassing. But I find myself, if I don't say it out loud, I, I do say it in my own heart, which is I actually look at my own kids and I actually think this out loud. I mean, it sounds like I say it out loud, but I literally am saying, why are you guys acting like children? I find out most of the reasons why I'm upset at my kids is when they're acting like kids. Because they screw stuff up. That's what they do. You have to understand that Jesus, is, when he talks, he's, call, he's moving us toward this place where we're completed to be made more mature because we're a work in progress kind of people, work that will never be completed until he comes back, whenever that is. So we keep moving in this process, which means if kids screw things up, there's going to have to be a provision for them when they screw up. Asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness. So he says most famously in his most famous prayer, the one that if you grew up in any kind of tradition where there's a regular ongoing prayer that looks like this, you probably recognize this, this passage. It's, one, it's only one chapter later. It says this. It begins with these words, our Father. Many, many, many times in the Bible, Jesus will use the words my Father and he'll use the words your Father. But only this instance where he says our Father, meaning we share the same Father. Now, here's what he'll say, continuing on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some of you are going to close your eyes and see if you can do this, you know, if you grew up with this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Then he goes to this. And forgive us. Because we don't get it right all the time. Now, Jesus is including people in this prayer. It's not that Jesus needs forgiveness. He's saying you guys are going to need to probably get to this place where you're asking for forgiveness. Because that's what kids do. They need forgiveness sometimes. And so forgive us our debts, or if you knew it as trespasses, as we have also forgiven our trespassers, those who trespass against us, or our debtors, those who owe us something. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, when we live as kids, we're going to make mistakes. Part of understanding that is going, I blew it. 
and there is no way of blowing it so far down the road that you can never come back. And Jesus says, this is what we say, because you're dearly loved children. Keep on going. New kind of perfect. Live as beloved children. Identify the unlovable ones. What I mean by that is this. There are people in your life, we are are told constantly, we have believed at some level, at least in my own case, because we're so afraid of being seen as people who are judgmental or rude or whatever else it might be, we decided that no one ever in our life has ever wronged us, even though they've wronged us. That there's pressure on us in some way or another to let people just run all over us. I would say, I hope that you... If, hopefully it's up online, I don't know if it is yet, but if you listen to last week's message, that might help a little bit in that regard. But there are some things that happen in our lives that are not okay. And there are things that need to be confronted and dealt with by people who love us. And there are people that have wounded us and hurt us, and there are people that we have, we have wounded and we have not loved also. But we have to call it whatever it is that has happened to us, the abuse, the neglect, the words of discouragement, the estrangement, all of those kinds of things. We have to call them what they are. And we have to really begin to identify the fact there are people in our lives who are quite unlovable. We have to call that what it is. Jesus is identifying the fact that there are people who we deem to be enemies. It doesn't do us any good to say those people, I'm pretending like everything's great. We have to identify the unlovable ones. Next, pray for them. Now, some of you are like, I'm not sure about prayer. I don't get prayer yet. I don't totally understand it. Uh, even people that really understand prayer, I, I look at them and they talk to me and I go, I don't even know what they're saying. I don't even get it. Like, there are people in my own life who I know I need and I'm like, I still don't get it. I get that that might be where some of you are. Let me tell you what, just to give you something really practical about this. Even if you don't believe, I believe even if you don't believe in prayer, this will still help you. Because there's something we talk about prayer that really we start praying for people who are our own enemies. There's something... That's really critical. That is the only way. Now remember, Jesus did say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. We have to we start here. But there's one thing as I think about prayer that's always, if you're going to really have an effective prayer for someone else, it looks like this. Effective prayer for another person is always empathetic. Empathy is the ability to identify with the feelings of someone else, to put yourself in their shoes. Now here's what happens. I talk, well, by the way, I say this. I talked to a guy on Thursday night who said, um, he goes, listen, I, I don't know what to do. I, the person I really have, who is my enemy is my own sister. And he goes, I don't know what to do. He goes, so here's what I tried to do. And notice how courageous this is. He goes, I just started praying. For, he goes, I don't, I don't even want to do this, but I'm just praying that she would be okay. That's, that's all he could get out. And I said, my gosh, you know how courageous that is? All you're praying for is, you're not praying that she would get her head screwed on straight and then she would come apologize to you. You're praying that she would be okay. Now, I believe, we, you know, if you're part of our church community, you might have heard us, we believe in the ability that, we believe that prayer does actually have some kind of effect, that God actually does work and hears the prayer of people. But even if he didn't, let me just say that, that let's just say it, it didn't happen. If you're a person who's skeptical about that end, what happens to us when we pray a prayer of empathy even if you're not sure if it's going to work, is that it changes you. It makes you more merciful. It makes you become a kind of person who's actually willing to understand and take on the understanding of someone else. That makes you more merciful. See, this is really what happened. I think in one way or another, what the ultimate picture is the beginning, the more we grow in our mercy, the more we get sort of reaching that end that God is calling us toward. Something really strange happens. It's a made-up word. I made this up, and it's, you're going to look at it and go, that's not even close to what, it, that's even look like a real word. Bear with me. But this is what actually happens. De-enemyification. <laughs> the more we grow in mercy, the fewer people there are that hold the status of enemy in our lives. The, the long end, the big long view of the picture of time has Jesus restoring the world to a place where this, there are, this isn't, well, there's a world of peace and of hope. We don't have that yet. But we live in anticipation of that future by de-enemyifying, <laughs> bear with me, the world. Growing rich in mercy. Because we always imagine that we aren't the enemy, that someone else is. That's how we perceive it. Let me show you something. Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He writes these words. 
And it is a bit shocking. Look what he says. For if while we were God's enemies, he's writing to the church. If we're God's enemies, meaning this is how we're identified first. We were reconciled, meaning we brought back together to God through, through the death of his son Jesus. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Meaning, he's going to go through this whole passage. How do we live as people who are far from God, who have been brought close to God? That's the example we get. We are perceived as enemies who are brought close to God through his own love because he wants and sees us and loves us as his own children. That's the intent. And the purpose or the way in which we move forward in our own lives and our own experience of the world is one in which we say, I want to grow in that kind of sacrificial, unrestricted kind of love. We are not there, but Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who brings us to that place over time, by degree, bit by bit. This is what God intends for us, that we would be made to be more, more and more merciful every single day. Let's pray. Jesus, you have loved us. You have called us your own children. You brought us to a place of wholeness, and Father, there's still brokenness in us. And we receive, Father, that you would give to us a life that is increasing and being pieced back together. Father, as we consider our own lives and the people who have been deemed enemies, either out, out loud or even in a quietness of our own hearts, Father, would you move us towards a greater place of mercy and of hope. Jesus, I think about the people as I talked to some folks after last service who may need to come forward and receive extra prayer from some of our prayer team. But there is deep hurts and deep wounds by people who are enemies. There have been people who have been treated like, really literally like doormats, Father. Father, we need your help and restoration. Might you free us from the experience of having to live up to a, a doing everything right standard. And rather, Father, we live to a place in which we grow and increase in mercy and forgiveness, which is what you have given us already. Father, as we sing these songs, as we set them to music, might you take our brokenness and place it back together in such a way that we can live out the purposes that you have for us in our lives. So, Father, hear our words as we sing, as we set them to music. In your name, Father. Amen. Amen. And as Jeff said, we, we want to take this time. If you guys, if you need prayer for, for anything, if God's tugging at your heart from that message and, and, and kind of leading you, listen to that. Listen to that. We have the prayer team to, our, to my left, to my right. Let's worship together. Can we stand together? It says in Psalms that God does not, God does not, what, what he's looking after at, at is, is for contrite hearts, for, for hearts meaning that, uh, that, are, that, are, that are broken, that are humble. That's what, he's, that's what he's after. That's what he's looking for. And he places his treasure in broken people, in, in imperfect people. He places his treasure in broken vessels, it says in scripture. Now let's sing this song together. Set your trail. 
Sing it again, amazing grace, amazing grace. Let's declare it. Let's receive his amazing grace. We receive it, Lord. We receive your grace. I was, was lost, but now I'm found. Was the
sweet the sound. A wretch like me. Whoa, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I All of us, at some level, have either been lost or are lost. God looks at us and says, I want you to come home. I want you to live as my children, dearly loved, that you might love as I have loved you. And every one of us is acutely aware of our own inability to do everything right. It doesn't mean God has stopped intending for us to become the people he intended us to become. And he grabs us with great open arms, with love saying, let's do this together. I'll be the author and I'll be the perfecter of your faith. Would you just do this as you hold out your hands? Do you receive this? Nothing magical about your hands being open, just a way to receive what God might put, put in your own hands. So would you receive this? Father, we stand before you as people who have a lot to learn. We have a lot of people that have wronged us and we have wronged a lot of other people. We have called people enemies and we've lived with justifiable reasons to keep them at a distance. And yet, Father, you call us to live out a kind of love, to walk in the way of love that you have loved us. Sacrificial, revolutionary, and unrestricted. Might we, Father, take our role on the earth, not simply to be a group of people who are extracted from our communities, living in a private little club we call the church, but Father, might we take that seriously, living out into the community, a kind of love that is transformative and powerful and remarkable. Might you bring about healing for the brokenness that's been caused in us by other people, and might we live out a kind of forgiveness and mercy that you've already extended to us, Jesus. We know that there's power in that. We affirm that, and we step into that, Father, with great courage. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. On your way out, if you want to drop this off, if you fill this out at the outreach table, you want to ask more questions about Serve Day, don't miss it. It is one of the greatest things to be a part of. Drop it off at the outreach table, or if you're new, stop by the turquoise umbrella, and we'll talk to you there, get you connected. Have a great week. God bless you guys.